For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hello, everyone, everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. We are so blessed to have you with us today. We have been, we started a study last week about living in the last days. And we're going to continue along that theme today. But right now, I want to take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. First, to honor Him and ask for His blessing on this broadcast. But second, Fifteen years ago today, at the exact moment that we are talking right now, is when the first plane hit Tower 1, the North Tower, on 9-11 at the time of this broadcast. So let's go and remember the people who lost their lives in these terrible terrorist attacks. As we go through this broadcast this day, the anniversary of the worst attack on this nation occurred. You had the second tower attack, the plane into the Pentagon, the first tower falling, and at the end of the broadcast, a few minutes after we go off the air today, will be the 15th anniversary of the second tower falling and the plane crashing in Pennsylvania. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray up the hedge of protection around the borders of this land. We pray for the forgiveness of the national sins that have brought judgment to the borders of our land. We intercede in behalf of this nation. We pray for the mercy of the Father God Almighty to be extended to this nation. Lord, we pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit from one end of this nation to the other that will turn the hearts and minds of the people of this land back to you. We bind every demonic power, every evil spirit, every ruler of the darkness of this world, every prince and principality and power in high places that tries to exalt itself against the word of God. 
We stand in agreement with like-minded Christians praying everywhere at this moment in time, at the time of this broadcast, that God's word and his will will always be done on this earth, just as it is in heaven. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for redeeming us from the promise of hell and giving to us the forgiveness of sins, the gift of everlasting life. Now, Lord, have your way with this broadcast that your word will go forth and accomplish what you please and prosper where you send it because it is written, your word does not return to you void. We thank you for the word of God that we will read today and which is in our hearts. Lord, thank you for being our Lord and Savior and soon our coming King. And we ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Shout amen, somebody. Get in an agreement. Praise God. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. We're going to be talking again about living in the last days. And in order to do that, you have to understand what the Bible says about the last days. And you're going to be shocked as we go through today's study. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, begins his commentary on Matthew 24 with the following words. He says, quote, Few chapters of the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24 and in its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21. The history of the interpretation of this chapter is immensely complex. Amen. Unquote. Amen. His statements underlies the difficulties people have encountered when trying to interpret Matthew 24. And as we try to understand what Jesus is telling us in this chapter, we would do well to approach it with caution and just avoid the overly simplistic views and dogmatism and, and uh, the attempts to say what Jesus did not say. Amen. Studying Matthew 24 in the larger context of the preceding chapters will help us to avoid a lot of the interpretation pitfalls. Amen? We may be surprised to learn that the background of Matthew 24 actually begins as far back as chapter 16, beginning about verse 21. And we're given the following summary statement. It says, From that time, this is in 1621, From that time... Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he needed to go to Jerusalem and would suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, but on the third day be raised to life. By his comments, Jesus sets the stage for what 
appears to be to the disciples a showdown in Jerusalem of sorts between himself and the religious authorities. And he continues at various times to tell his disciples about this imminent conflict as they make their way to Jerusalem. You can look at uh, chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. During this time, Jesus was trying to explain that he was going to suffer at Jerusalem is where he took Peter, James, and John up to the high mountain and was transfigured before their their presence. That's in chapter 17. You can read verses 1 through 13. Now, of itself, this must have made the disciples wonder whether or not the establishment of the kingdom of God was close at hand. But Jesus told the disciples that they would also be sitting on 12 thrones judging Israel, quote, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. That's in chapter 19, verse 28. No doubt... This sparked additional questions about the time and manner of the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus talking about the kingdom even prompted the mother of James and John to ask him to give special positions of honor in the kingdom to her two sons in chapter 20. Then, they didn't realize it at the time, But the scripture says they realized that after his resurrection and ascension, then came the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where Jesus rode into the city on a donkey. That's in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Matthew said this fulfilled what the prophet Zechariah had spoken, and which was thought to refer to the coming of the Messiah. Now the entire city of Jerusalem was stirred up as Jesus came entering into town. People cutting down palm fronds and laying them down on the pavement and taking their clothes and jackets and and laying them down. It was symbolic of welcoming a coming king that was setting the city free. So the entire city was stirred up. And they were all wondering what was going to happen now that Jesus had come back into Jerusalem. And then he overturned the money lenders' tables and, and beat them with whips and took other actions that demonstrated his messianic authority to do so. And the people's response in chapter 21, verse 10 is, Who is this guy? In 21:43, Jesus told the chief priests and the elders of the people, I'm telling you, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Glory to God. And they knew he was talking about them, Scripture says. Jesus' statement could have been taken as an implication, especially in the eyes of his disciples, that he was ready to establish his messianic kingdom. 
and that the religious leaders would not be a part of it. Amen. The disciples who heard this must have wondered, man, what is going to happen next? Was Jesus ready now to announce that he was actually the Messiah? Was he ready now to put down Roman authority? Was he on the verge of bringing in the kingdom of God to rule and reign from Jerusalem forever? Would there be a war? What would happen to Jerusalem? What would happen to the temple? What was Jesus going to be doing next? And then we come to Matthew chapter 22 and about verse 15. Here the scene begins with the Pharisees laying plans to trap Jesus because, as I said, and the scripture says, they knew Jesus was prophesying these things against them. And they decided in order for us to hold onto our position of power and our position of influence, we need to get rid of this guy. And the best way of doing it and to keep our hands clean is to have the Romans grab them. So they begin to lay traps for Jesus. And they begin asking him questions. And in chapter 22, verse 15, they come to him with the question of, is it legal to pay tribute, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they wanted to use his answer as the basis for accusing Jesus to the Romans of rebelling against Roman authority. But Jesus answered their rather cleverly uh, question with his own cleverness and foiled their plan and really embarrassed them. And then scripture says in chapter 22, verses 23 all the way down through 32, that the same day the Sadducees also had an encounter with Jesus. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they asked him a trick question they had come up with about seven brothers marrying the same woman. Whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Now, in the biblical times, women held almost no place in society. None. Their role was to be a servant to their husband and to bear children. Since this woman could bear no children and all seven had married her and therefore she was a servant of all seven, really what they were asking is, in the resurrection, whose servant will she be? And Jesus answered them indirectly by telling them they didn't even understand their own scriptures. What a slap in the face, especially since they publicly brought this question to him and he publicly rebuked them. It's embarrassing for them. And then he confounded their, their attempt at tricking him by pointing out there is no marriage in the heavenly kingdom. So next, the Pharisees and Sadducees together tested Jesus on the meaning of the greatest commandment in the entire law. This is in chapter 22, verse 36. 
And again, Jesus confounds their plans by quoting both Leviticus 19 verse 8 and Deuteronomy 6 5. Matter of fact, let's go there. Glory to God. In chapter 22, verse 36, we'll read this. Master, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Now, in him quoting these two scriptures, he did two things. First, he answered their question. Second, he showed the hypocrisy that they were showing because they were not serving and loving the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their mind. You are a spirit being. You've heard me talk about this before as well as other preachers. Glory to God. You are a spirit. You live in this body, but you are a spirit being created in the image of Christ who's in the image of God. You know, I'm saying this if you're born again. Even if you are not born again. And I'm talking to those who are not born again. And you know I'm talking to you. Because there's something pricking at your heart right now. You are still a spirit being. There are two types of spirits. Those created in the image of Christ who's in the image of God and those who are created in the image of the devil. You are one or the other. And if you have not truly accepted Jesus as your Savior, you are not created in His image. And you know it. You know it on the inside. There is something. It could be a wondering. As your soul searches for the truth. If I die, will I really go to heaven? I, sometimes I wonder about these things. That's what your spirit and your soul is saying right now. If you are not saved. And Jesus, by quoting this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That is the triune being. Glory to God. For you are a spirit, you have a soul. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And if you are not serving the Lord your God and loving Him with all your heart, which is where your spirit is, all your soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions, And your body, 
you are not saved. And Jesus turned the question they were asking him to show their own hypocrisy that they were not serving the Most High God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their mind. And they were not fulfilling the second part of the law of loving their neighbor as themselves. They lifted themselves up as being, quote-unquote, all that in today's grammacular. They lifted themselves up as being above the common people. They were lifting themselves up by coming to Jesus, trying to trick him so they could condemn him to the Romans, a Jewish citizen that they were trying to falsely accuse of something and condemn him to death to the Romans. Jesus is saying, you are not serving God because your heart's not right with God and you're breaking the second commandment because you don't love me as yourself. You think you're better than me. He was bringing condemnation to their heart and to their soul and to their mind by turning the question they asked him back on them again. Amen. Then Jesus turned the tables on them again publicly and asked them a trick question. By asking who the son of the Messiah was supposed to be. They fell into his trap. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any questions. Chapter 22, verse 46. Why were they afraid to ask him any more questions? Because every time they asked him a question... Trying to trap him, he made them look like fools in front of the public. Amen? He turned a question back on them that made them look bad. In everybody's eyes, in everybody's ears, they heard. And then they'd stop and, and think about it. And they'd look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, Yeah, what about that? Remember where Jesus said, you give them all of these burdens that they have to carry and you don't even try to help them carry them. You just add to it. You won't even lift one finger to help them. And the people are like, yeah, what about that? So they are getting upset that every time they try and trick Jesus, he turns it back on them, making them look bad. In chapter 23, we see Jesus criticizing. Now, this is something you did not do in Jewish society. They would have you arrested and beaten and flogged and maybe locked up in the stocks for criticizing the priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. But Jesus does it publicly, and they're afraid to lay a hand on him because of the people. Now, towards the end of chapter 23, Jesus talks about 
how God had sent them prophets, wise men, and teachers whom they would flog and pursue and kill, even crucify. And he placed the responsibility of every slain prophet on their shoulders and said that the just payment of what they and their fathers had done would be required at their hand. And this scared them. Who is this guy that can talk like this? Nobody can talk to us like this, but yet we're powerless to do anything against him. Folks, if you stand up for the word of God, now, oh, praise God, hallelujah. If you are born again, you are in and of the kingdom of God. Amen? When Jesus brings the kingdom of God back to this earth, now remember, at his second coming, that's not ushering in the kingdom of God. That's ushering in his kingdom, which will reign, rule and reign for a thousand years. And why is everyone scared about his millennial reign? Because unlike some of the preachers that you hear about, this is going to be a glorious time and we'll just all be living peacefully and there will be peace on earth and the children will play with the snakes and they won't get bit and the lamb will lay with the lion and won't be afraid. It's just going to be so wonderful. Well, number one, yes, it will be peace on this earth for the first time since the fall of Adam and Eve. But it's not because Jesus is so peaceful and Jesus is so wonderful and, and Jesus is just going to be floating around. No, the Bible does not say that. It says there will be peace for 1,000 years because Jesus is going to reign with a rod of iron. And we, those who believe in him before his second coming, glory to God, shall rule and reign with him as kings and priests, that we shall be given different levels of authority in this earth. Jesus said, you know, some will be rulers over tens, over fifties, over hundreds, as is the example. Where Jesus told in the parable of the five talents, come and, and you can rule and reign. I'm going to put you in charge over one city. I'll put you in charge over five cities. I'll put you in charge over ten cities. We, now you must understand this as I'm saying it, we will receive a glorified body when we get to heaven. 
Amen? You die before the end of this broadcast. If you are born again, you are ushered immediately into the presence of Jesus. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.